Welcome, you're listening to a members-only broadcast brought to you by Barnabas Foundation, your trusted ministry partner for planned giving. And here's your host, Kurt Knoll, Director of Member Relations. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us. My name is Kurt Knoll, the Barnabas Foundation uh, Director of Member Relations, and it's a pleasure to have you with us here today for this conversation with Axe the Expert, Plan Giving in Times of Uncertainty. With me today is Jim Bakke, our Executive Director, who joins us with over 30 years of fundraising and planning experience. And before we jump into today's topic, Jim, uh, I know you asked, would you open us in a word of prayer? Sure, I'd be happy to. Lord, um, this is your world and we are yours. We pause today to acknowledge that you are our savior and you are the source of wisdom. So we ask for your wisdom and your guidance today for all of us on, the, on this call. We invite you into this call today. Please give us insight, uh, give us direction, and give us the peace that surpasses all of our understanding. And may our words and our actions bring you glory and honor today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jim. Well, welcome everybody again, and thank you for joining us. Um, for those of you who aren't aware who Barnabas Foundation is, if I may just for just a moment, uh, Barnabas for over 40 years has been serving our members by providing plan giving expertise. And this expertise that we provide to our members comes in four crucial areas. It includes an extensive array of marketing resources to, uh, uh, to communicate to your supporter, to our member supporters, the opportunities in plan giving. We have a, a back office administration team that's able to facilitate any sort of complex gift that donors wish to make to our members. We have a planning team that includes Jim uh, Baki as well as others that have extensive experience in tax and legal um, and estate planning knowledge to help donors um, think about complex giving issues during their lifetime as well as in their estate plans. And we do an extensive amount of training with development officers to get them very conversant in the language of plan giving so that they're able to present these opportunities to their supporters as they meet and talk with them. Um, we hope today that we can share some of this expertise that we've gleaned over our years um, in, make, in helping you understand how plan giving can still be an important part of your fundraising in these times of uncertainty like we have today. Today's format is a Q&A. I've got a series of questions I'm gonna ask Jim and he's gonna respond with some answers. Um, but if you have questions during the broadcast, feel free to put them into the Q&A section there on the screen, and we'll address them as best as we're able to. It's important to note that we have turned off the uh, raise your hand functionality here, so you need to use that Q&A section if you do have a question. So let's jump right into it today, Jim, all right? Um, sure. You know, in times like this, in periods of uncertainty, this economic kind of crisis that we find ourselves in as a result of the coronavirus, uh, we have a lot of donors out there that are dealing with financial stress. They've lost jobs. 20-some-odd million Americans have been uh, on the unemployment lines over the last few weeks. How do charities find themselves in a position to ask for gifts in times like this? Well, uh, first of all, I, wa I want to encourage us just to continue asking. And I want, uh, as we go into these types of times, I want, us to encur I want to encourage us to look for opportunities that may we may not have seen before. And then make sure that we keep our trust in the right place. I'm going to, we'll talk about that throughout this call. But um, asking people right now, how in the world do we do that? I've heard a variety of uh, suggestions on how we do this. But I, I want us to, I want to remind us that there are three different types of people that we're going to be working with. The first group is, is uh, those people that are really in financial stress right now. It's not everyone. 
but there's a group who have lost their jobs or their businesses have gone south or their investments have really taken a hit and they are in stress. Uh, those people need your support and your care right now. Uh, you actually have an opportunity to show them that you care for more than just their money. And this is actually a time that you can minister to them and uh, really uh, steward their relationship. Then there's another group that is really kind of status quo. Uh, these people are still employed. They're doing fine. They have no intentions to change their giving. Their investments have probably gone down, but they're not in a position where they're relying on those. So those people are continuing and have no intention to change their giving. And actually this, uh, this season is actually just a reminder to them that they probably should do some work on their estate plans as they, as they face uh, uh, their own mortality. So don't uh, slow your communication to them. You, uh, if you do, you'll probably reduce the likelihood that they'll give, uh, but keep your ongoing communication going and maybe even want to increase the frequency uh, to help them keep, uh, to be informed of your ministry. Then there's this third group of, of supporters and uh, they are aware of the needs and they are actually looking for a way to do something extra. They like to solve a problem. They like to rescue people in great need. They actually like the idea that they could be a hero in a crisis in a good way. Uh, we've been in communication with some of these people asking how they can accomplish some extraordinary goal, charitable goals to meet the immediate needs. Um, so uh, as you're communicating with donors, recognize that while some are in stress, some are really teed up to do something extra. Um, so I would say keep asking keep communicating. I have a couple of other tips we'll talk about a little bit later. I think that has been one of the amazing things, Jim, that we've seen. We were talking about this just last week, the, the volume of grants we've been sending out this year relative to last year um, is, uh, is up substantially. And so donors are, you know, that have put away money for times like these are being faithful and sending it out to their favorite charities. Um, last week, Jim and I, as we were preparing for this, you know, we talked a little bit about history and how history um, has shown uh, generosity of people stepping forward um, in times of great stress and turmoil. Um, and Jim, you got some thoughts on this and some examples to share. I think as we look at the, at the uncertainty of the future, I think it's really important for us to look back and see what God's people did and, and Americans have done in the past in times of crisis. And if we go back to the first century, we read in 2 Corinthians, where Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians about the Macedonian churches. And this passage never ceases to amaze me, where he wrote, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And then he goes on, beyond their, their ability. And I think there's one thing we need to realize is that, that people in tough times still give. In fact, I just heard a speech by Robert Sharp Jr. Uh, talking about different crises in the past hundred years in the U.S. and their effect on charitable giving. He talked about the panic of 2000, uh, the panic of 1907, the pandemic of 1918, the Great Depression of the 1930s, and then he jumped up to um, 9/11 in 2001 and the Great Recession in 2008. Uh, 
these, these t crisis times had some very interesting similarities. So the panic of 1907, the stock market dropped by 50%. The recession was twice as severe as 2008, uh, but they saw that fundraising continued and fundraisers just changed their activities to more stewardship of donors, which we're recommending, and high priority projects. They saw that there was less brick and mortar gifts made and more endowment type uh, gifts. They actually saw uh, an increase in both bequest and gift annuity activity coming out of that time. So interesting from 1907. Then the pandemic of uh, 1918, uh, this was a, a time where the percentage of the population that died was 10 times today's estimates of COVID, according to Robert Sharp. Uh, again, we saw significant fundraising coming out of that pandemic. Uh, they saw major gifts went down, the major, uh, uh, the, the most significant gifts, but increases came out of the masses giving small amounts being solicited door to door. Then in the Great Depression of the 30s, stock market lost 90% of its value. Employment was down 25%. And uh, current giving did decline along about the same lines as unemployment numbers uh, at about 25 to 30%. Uh, major gifts had the greatest drop, uh, but then had the highest rebound in the following six to eight years. And so over an eight year process, uh, we saw the Great Depression have a pretty significant dip, but then bounce right back in charitable giving. Then when we move forward to 2001 and two, in the Great Recession of 2008, um, uh, he made the comment that the, the giving numbers from 2008 look very similar to the giving of the Great Depression. Uh, the characteristics of giving 2008 is that younger donors took a little bit longer to recover than the older donors. Uh, donors 55 and plus had a very quick recovery after 2008, uh, but for everyone to recover, it took about, again, eight years. Uh, the biggest dip in 2008 came from the wealthiest donors, but then the quickest recovery came from that group as well. So uh, from history, what kind of conclusions can we draw? Well, first of all, um, as I've said, givers give. They may, may need to change how they give and some of the timing, but they'll continue to give. This won't be the end of, of uh, charitable giving, whether it's current giving or planned giving. The key that we see from, from history is it's crucially important that we communicate with them. The more direct communication you can have, the better. Uh, this is not a time to reduce your donor contact. But uh, as we saw in, in these past crises, and especially in, in 1907, um, we need to have a mindset of stewardship and ministering to the donors. Uh, they're either in one of three situations, but if you start with the idea that maybe they're under stress, if they aren't, they'll tell you, hey, my giving is going to continue. And they might be part of that group that says, I really want to step up. If your major donors can't make non-cash asset gifts right now and, and make their largest gifts, be patient. They will be back and as soon as they can. And you can, uh, while you can expect some drops in this area in the next year, uh, 18 months, you can also expect that those people will step back up. And so the asset gifts uh, will be coming 
uh, once they recover some of their, their value. Uh, there are still, even though a lot of people have had some significant drops in value, there still are a lot of appreciated asset gifts out there. So you don't have to worry about that. The other thing is that in all of these crises, they saw, uh, with exception of 2008, they saw a step up in bequest giving and in more endowment type giving. So I think that it's very reasonable to, to expect that it's, uh, that you, you should have an uptick in, in bequest giving if you are communicating with your donors and inviting them to consider it. Uh, I think in, in this one, uh, uh, we've seen a significant step up in, in uh, wills being created, I think partially because of uh, COVID um, forcing us to address our mortality. But remember the Macedonians, out of their severe trial came rich generosity, and we can count on that. Thank you, Jim, for that perspective. And we've gotten a couple comments in the Q&A about how um, that his, uh, historical perspective is very, very helpful. But a question for you, Jim, is uh, coming out of that. Doesn't um, that, that point to the heart motivation of givers and how they recognize the heightened need for the things that they're motivated to address in that, you know, from history? Um. Uh, could, I, I lost a little bit of what you said. Could you repeat that sentence again? Or that sure, question? sure. The, the question that was posed was, do, um, they commented on the historical perspective and loved hearing it, but doesn't that point to the heart motivation of givers and how they recognize the heightened need for the very things they're motivated to address, meaning the givers? Absolutely. Uh, givers invest in things they care about. None of us throw away money. And so... Uh, the other thing that, that we're observing uh, in our office is uh, that people who have been giving in, in, you know, kind of their pattern of giving have probably sharpened their focus and given their largest gifts to the organizations they're most concerned about. Mm -hmm. Very true. We have seen a tremendous response with our donor advice fund givers responding to the needs of their favorite charities, that's for certain. We saw the same thing, and as I recall, in 2009, Jim, I know you had, uh, you had been with us for a period of time prior to 06, and then went to World Vision for 10 years, or just about before you came back to us just five years ago. But um, So I joined in 2006, and in that 08-09 period, we certainly saw that drop off in current gifts, but we yeah. saw a tremendous amount of estate-based activity and kind of complex planning for the, when things did recover. Um, and so the encouragement is still there as fundraisers to be talking to your donors still. The same message applies that we've talked about before, even in these times of uncertainty. It's, it's good to be talking about this. Yeah. Um, let me see. We've got another question that popped in before we continue on. Um, is it good to target donors with a DAF as these gifts don't disturb their current cash flow or their portfolio? They just need to make a designation. Um, I would agree with that statement, wouldn't you, Jim, to be talking to donors about giving from their DAFs? Okay, so if you have a, a list of people who have given from their donor advised fund, absolutely this is uh, uh, your best group of people to go to right now. They don't have to make another gift out of their, their uh, current assets because their donor advised fund, many of them already have a balance in that donor advised fund. And that's what we're seeing right now with our donor advice fund. The gifts coming into Barnabas right now are very small. The gifts going out are just, uh, it's record year, no question. So if you know of a donor who has given to you through a donor advice fund, put them at the top of your list to call. Mm 
if you're, if, yeah. We encourage our members to make sure that they're flagging donors who give from a donor advised fund in their system. So that's easy to recognize those folks um, in times like this, especially, but also as for additional plan giving opportunities as well. Another question, Jim, what is the best method for reaching out to donors at this moment in time that yields the best results? Well, uh, we know that face-to-face -face is always the best way to reach out to donors, but face-to-face uh, -face is out of the question. And, uh, so I would say engage them on, as many as you can on the phone. Uh, get voice-to-voice -voice with as many as you can. In fact, I know of organizations that have mobilized their staff to just get as many staff members as possible on the phone with their donors for no other reason than to serve them and ask them how they can help. And then um, if, if people want to help in special ways, then, then offer, invite them to give. But I would say uh, get as many on the phone as possible. Uh, to the extent you can't get on the phone, I would still say uh, get, your, get your communication out, whether it's by email or uh, regular mail. Excellent. I think, I think the direct mail uh, folks probably can address that better than I can because uh, we're, not, we're not in the direct mail business. But I would, uh, my opinion is keep that direct mail going. Another question that just came in, and I, I do love this question because we do talk to members often about this, but how can we encourage donors through direct mail to take action on an estate plan? Uh, so, uh, Russell James has done a lot of study on this, and if there's one thing that he would say is add making a gift in your will to part of another communication, but don't lead with death. If you lead with, would you please consider a gift in your, uh, in your uh, will to us, you're leading with death. So uh, make it a part of other asks, make it a part of, a, of uh, uh, different ways to give, smarter ways to give. Uh, you, you probably, many of you have seen uh, brochures where they talk about the different ways to give, whether it's uh, your current giving, giving of assets, giving a gift that gives income for life, and then giving a gift in your will. Uh, use illustrations of other people who have made a gift in their will. Um, but this is an area where it's a different type of uh, decision than your direct mail, uh, direct solicitation process. It's uh, actually the decision is made in a different part of the brain. We hear from, from people that have researched this. And so you have to realize that they are saying when they make that gift in their will, you're part of my family. And so if you're emphasizing, would you help us uh, and as part of our family, uh, that triggers that part of their, their thinking process to say, I want to include your ministry in my, in my will. Thank you, Jim. And I know as we engage with member organizations on this very topic, we encourage them to incorporate plan gift messaging throughout all of their donor communications one of the most powerful things we often encourage them to do in, in their newsletters or in, in any sort of direct mail piece where you have the ability to do so is to incorporate donor testimonials and stories and the entire concept of social norming as we've seen. This idea that stories of others doing things that you are uh, similar to or can relate to can help propel that person into a decision to say, I need to do the same thing. Um, and that's some research that came from Russell James as well, is it not, Jim, the, the social norming aspect? 
Yes, in fact, that's, that's the one part of plan giving where uh, historically we, we say, if there's only one thing that works, it's telling the story of other people who have done uh, something similar to, the you, the, to, to what we would like you to do. Um, uh, we want people to say, people like me do things like this. I see what he's doing. I'd like to do something like what this person did. And uh, that is, that's powerful uh, to encourage other people to make a, make a gift in their will. Mm -hmm. um, a question came in, Jim, is it beneficial to share how there's been an increase in Americans searching for how to make a will um, in search engines, you know, to show that it's common? Um, and my first response to that is yes, but I think you have to find the right way to, to talk about that without leading with the death aspect of it. Yes. But to, 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 you can point out that there's, there's a lot of interest in legacies and your legacy, the donor's legacies that they're thinking about, um, especially when faced with this crisis. Um, oh, and Barry, thank you for the comment there about um, certainly oftentimes, so Barry there, the Q&A, he mentioned that when he uh, references donors over to Barnabas, um, they often initiate uh, the donors to share about their will and estate giving. Um, we have had that pleasure over the 40 years we've been doing this to engage with thousands of families. And uh, one of the things we have found is when we are able to get into that intimate sacred space with them, and Jim, you can attest to this, they, they often pour their heart out to you um, in the planning sessions. And, uh, and we get to dive into the intimate details of their lives and help them find a roadmap um, for their charitable giving that uh, provides for their charities, provides for their heirs, and ultimately honors God. Would you agree with that statement, Jim? Absolutely. Uh, uh, everyone knows that they want to create a will and they need to create a will, but there are these roadblocks that keep them from getting it done. And one of them is just the procrastination and the fear of thinking about death. The second is the, the decisions that need to be made that have them stuck. Sometimes they're related to charitable giving. Sometimes they're related to a family matter. Sometimes they're related to a specific asset or a business. And they really need good, wise counsel to walk, to navigate through those decisions. And especially if uh, a couple um, uh, find themselves on different sides of an opinion of, of a plan, uh, they really need wise counsel to, to get to the right answer. And so that's the, the place where we just love to be in that sacred space with couples, helping them come up with what the, should the plan be, both on the charitable side and planning for, the, for their family uh, to help them get that plan complete. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's where, you know, promoting uh, gifts to your, to your ministry in direct mail is important, but so is that individual conversation if you can, if you can get your donors into that conversation. Uh, I appreciate all the great questions everybody's putting in. Please keep, keep them coming. Uh, it makes this uh, much more exciting and engaging when you all are, are asking these questions. Um, uh, another question, Jim, uh, do you feel direct mail is still necessary at this stage? You know, that we know people just kind of don't bother to go to their mailbox for days on end, but there is a certain segment of the population that we're dealing with that still values mail. And it's right in that target audience for plan giving. Is it not, Jim? Yes. I, uh, you know, our, uh, if, if we look at who is going to really help us in the next 10 years, it's that baby boomer who is maturing, who is uh, retiring, and that whole group. And I would say that uh, that older group 
definitely still needs direct mail. I, I'll, I'll leave the, the conclusion of how much direct mail to the researchers and the people that are doing, that are really doing direct mail as a daily basis. But I know I would not abandon direct mail at this time. Um, uh, I, I think that it still definitely has value. And, you know, in your mind, Jim, with, with direct mail, um, what, what do you think is the best response device? Is it asking them to pick up the phone or email or, or just a simple checkbox on the response device or all three? Well, uh, getting them to respond to something other than just, I'm, I want to leave you in my will, whether it's a survey or an assessment of priorities for your ministry or uh, you know, off, uh, inviting them to make comments or make a, giving you a prayer request or something that they're responding to you about giving their opinion to you is always better than just uh, uh, a response, a checkbox, uh, or um, inviting them to take the proactive action of an email or a call. Uh, so the, if you can tag uh, their interest in a gift in their will, along with something else, I think that's going to be good. You have to realize that some of those uh, responses then might be false positives, uh, and you're going to need to follow up with them. And <clears throat> it is critically important, if you are going to do a direct mail piece where you're inviting them to respond, that you have an appropriate uh, back office to actually do that, to, to process those responses. And uh, if you're inviting them to consider a gift in their will, uh, have some way that they can then uh, talk to somebody to settle the issues that they need to around their gift and their will. Um, uh, otherwise, you're you're they're showing some ex, uh, expression of interest, but not necessarily getting the job done. Mm -hmm. So make sure you have the the back office fulfillment process ready. Excellent. Um, a question here too on language, Jim. So we, we've talked about using simple language a bit and I would just state that we as an organization do follow the research that Russell James has put out on words that work. Um, and so when we talk about the types of planned gifts, we often talk about gifts in a will, uh, gifts that provide an income for life or, or non-cash asset gifts. Um, but Jim, you wanna expound on that just a little bit about what language is best to be using when talking, about, when talking to people or trying to market to people about making a planned gift? So uh, there are a lot of people now that are, are doing some research, that are doing research on this. I think Russell James uh, uh, leads the way, but there are other groups that are trying to determine what is the best language. But everything we've heard is family language rather than market language, uh, simpler rather than more complex. Uh, a gift in a will is, uh, or a are you interested in a gift that gives you income, that provides income, uh, a gift that provides a tax deduction and provides you income? Uh, those are, that's uh, non-market language um, that, that uh, the researchers have found people respond better to than uh, if you say, um, would you like to make a bequest in your revocable living trust? Uh, so we, we definitely encourage you to go as simple as uh, or simple and more family language uh, to the extent possible. Excellent. Um, 
another question came in the Q&A, Jim. What do you think of including newsletters as an attachment to an email communication, such as, you know, by the way, I thought you might be interested in an update on our activities. Um, I, would, I would think that if you're doing, you know, donor communication, if this is like a major gift officer or perhaps a mid-level range uh, communication, and you're communicating with someone that you have a relationship with, I see absolutely no problem whatsoever with including something like that. Um, or even another piece that may be um, you know, something you produce that could be a donor story or, uh, or some sort of um, conversation starter piece um, to get them engaged in a conversation. But Jim, you know, what do you think about that with whether it be uh, you know, major gift fundraising or, or in a mass campaign about attaching newsletters as part of an email communication? I think a lot of people are doing that and I would expect that it would be effective. The more personal, the and more, yeah, the more personal you can make it, the better. Uh, I know of some uh, major gift fundraisers that anytime they see a, a newsletter or a newsletter article, even a newspaper article that relates to something that would interest their donor, they are uh, uh, forwarding that and uh, sent, you know, sending it to the donor just saying, hey, I thought you might be interested in this uh, article. Uh, from a mass perspective, if you're doing that, you know, a newsletter along with everything, you know, I think I'd leave that to the mass marketing experts. Uh, but I do know that if you show uh, to your supporter that you know them and you know what interests them and you're providing something of interest that might, that might uh, benefit them, that has to have, uh, that has to have value. Excellent. So Jim, um, you know, at a time like this, we have this, this economic uncertainty, we have this continuing virus, the lockdowns in various places, there's some states moving to unlock, you know, and open up, reopen again, we're not sure how well it's going to work out just yet. Um, there's still just a ton of uncertainty out there. There's a lot of concerns for a lot of folks financially about, uh, you know, how they're going to pay their bills, their rent, their mortgage, so on and so forth. Um, but how, how might ministries look at this time as an opportunity? Yeah, this is, this is what we're asking in our office. What opportunities are coming out of this that we didn't expect, but are opening, uh, 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 but are opening new doors for us in our work? And, uh, you know, it's too early, too early to tell, but we already are seeing some things. Uh, let's just talk about Zoom. Zoom used to be the noise an airplane made, then it became the Mazda commercial, and now it is part of our daily life. In fact, I'm at, almost at the point where I'd like to have a Zoom-free room in my house. <laughs> but what has it done for us? It has, it has uh, introduced video conversations into every single household. And I don't know what that's going to do for the future, but I think we're going to actually be able to do more planning conversations with key uh, supporters of our ministries without walking into their home. I think we'll be able to look into a camera and talk to people and, and have uh, intimate conversations because they're doing that uh, every week with their families. So that's just one opportunity. But I think, you know, we need to really be looking for what, what new opportunities are there what innovations, how can we focus? Maybe the opportunity is to stop doing something or quit spending money on something that we thought was essential, but uh, necessity here becomes the mother of invention. Uh, and do we redirect the focus of our ministry as we've seen some 
organizations do. Uh, uh, but as you're looking for opportunities, realize that opportunities don't necessarily follow organizational charts. So the opportunity might come from the person who is the closest to the field, but maybe not being paid the most. And so uh, look for that. Excellent. Thank you, Jim. Um, another question came in and, and uh, what opportunities right now to attract new donors? Um, I think from our organization's standpoint, uh, our primary focus as an organization is to work with existing donors and present them with uh, plan giving opportunities. Um, and we don't have any particular expertise necessarily in, in donor acquisition. Um, Jim, I don't know if you have any thoughts or experiences from your time at World Vision. So I have been on a number of uh, uh, educational sessions recently, and they're actually saying this isn't the time for donor acquisition. This is, this is really the time for solidifying your donor base, getting to your most loyal, your longest term donors, uh, uh, really deepening the relationship with them right now. The people that are hurting, of course, you know, ministering to them and the people that have the opportunity to step up, step up, but probably not look at this as a time for mass uh, donor acquisition. Unless, of course, you are in an area where uh, your, your ministry is addressing the specific need that is coming out of uh, the COVID crisis. Um, but if, uh, if somebody has an idea for donor acquisition that is uh, successful, I won't tell, uh, you know, I don't want to contradict you, but that's the, the, the conventional wisdom now is go deeper rather than try to grab new donors. So I know we're just over two o'clock here and, and this session was scheduled for about 30 minutes, but we're happy to kind of, we have two last questions that I know I was gonna to touch on here with you, Jim. Um, for anybody watching, if you do have questions afterwards and you'd like to just talk with us here at the Barnabas Foundation, feel free to reach out to me by just emailing me at Kurt, K-U-R-T, at BarnabasFoundation.com, it is .com. Um, so I'll be happy to address any questions after the fact. Um, but Jim, just quickly, could you just review real quickly what the kind of, provisions were in the CARES Act that benefit donors that uh, our member uh, these folks watching today should uh, be aware of if they're not already? Yes, that was a, that's another big opportunity. Uh, obviously, there's the above the line charitable deduction of $300. For most of your donors, that probably won't be an issue uh, because they're already contributing at that level or higher. Uh, the big one for the step up donors is that they can deduct up to 100% of their charitable uh, or 100% of their income in charitable deductions. Uh, that's for gifts of cash made directly to your ministry. Uh, so those are the two big ones. Uh, obviously there were provisions in the CARE Act around the IRA bill uh, where they don't need to take uh, required minimum distributions, but they can still make with uh, charitable withdrawals. Um, uh, so uh, the IRA gifts are still a good opportunity. There are still a number of people who have appreciated assets, even though market, the markets have really uh, taken a dip. Uh, so don't give up on appreciated asset gifts. And then um, uh, one other, let me just say one other opportunity here is uh, because some people can't make current gifts right now, uh, they will look to making a gift in their will. And so if someone says, boy, I really wish I could give more, it's a perfect time to say, have you ever considered a gift in my will, in your will? Uh, so uh, I think the, the CARES Act 
uh, for most of your donors won't be a, won't be a significant uh, advantage, but for a few it could be advantage for you know uh, uh, the, the mega gifts that you'd really like to have during this time. Now, that was an important reminder too, Jim, that even though we saw this stock market pullback this year that was pretty significant from, you know, from January into the end of March, we've just come off of a long period of strong stock market increases. And last year, the market was up 30 plus percent. Um, and years prior, there were gains here in the years prior. So many of your donors do have still significant gains in their portfolios of securities if they have taxable accounts. Um, that are eligible to be given to charity. Um, they may not want to right now because there's been the slight pullback, but if they do look at the overall appreciation, there's still a lot of opportunity there to be talking about cash, uh, non-cash asset gifts at this time. Yeah. Um, the $300 itemized deduction is per tax form, not per individual, correct? Correct. So if you're married uh, filing jointly, you get 300. If you're married filing separately, each of you gets 300. Excellent. And then, um, Jim, a question here. Uh, what reading do you recommend to become conversant with donors about plan giving, asset-based giving, and estate planning? Well, certainly we'd encourage you to come and talk to us because that's what we do. But any particular books that you've read, Jim, that you might uh, mark as a resource to someone? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I, I would definitely send you, first of all, the first place I'd send you is to all of Russell James' material. He's got several uh, books out and he's got articles. Uh, if you go to his web, if you just Google Russell James, I would start by reading uh, all of his stuff. Um, then there are a number of other uh, uh, books I don't have right here, but uh, I think I'd start with Russell James. I'd like to close with the other thing, I'd, the other passage I'd like you to, I'd like to read. Unless, do we have any other questions quick before we close? No, that was uh, the last question that we had here, Jim. And I was just going to point out that you can, that folks can find Russell's blog if you just re, uh, Google Russell James in his blog. Um, and he puts a lot of his research out on his blog. So. But anyway, Jim, I know the last thing that we were going to talk about, um, we talk about a bit as an organization on a weekly basis. And um, even in this time of uncertainty that we have and, and moments like this, um, where do we put our trust? Yeah. So let me just say to all of you, uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, webinar. Thank you for being part of CLA. Uh, and all of us are followers of Jesus. And so in these times, I encourage us to go right back to Jesus's words. And right now, my favorite place to read is Matthew 6 and to direct people to Matthew 6. And so if you haven't been there recently, I'd encourage you to uh, spend some time in that chapter um, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about several of the spiritual disciplines that if we, if we put into our lives on a regular basis, will make a big difference. And he starts with giving, um, uh, you're giving in secret rather than, and I call that secrecy in your generosity. Then he goes to prayer, private intentional prayer. And then he goes to fasting. Then he talks about intentional investment in eternal investments rather than in short-term investments. And he ends that with the importance to reorder our relationship with money. We can't serve money. We'll either love the one and hate the other or, or hold to the one and despise the other. And then he goes into this section on don't worry, 
but he actually encourages us to have a different intentional discipline of seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first. And that is actually the antidote to worry. And if you would allow me, I'd like to read, uh, I've been reading chapter six forward and backward during this time. And so if you would allow me, I'd just like to read a few verses from the back to the beginning of Matthew six. And here's how it ends. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then the verse before that, therefore don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. And my favorite verse, 633, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And the verse before that, he says, your heavenly father knows you have need them, like these things. And the verse before that says, the pagans are running after all these things. What are these things? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Um, and he says, but don't worry about all that. And then before that, he talks about, you know, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And even Solomon couldn't match that glory. And when, when you go back to Jesus's words and just listen to that and read that from a loving father, uh, it really puts in perspective where we need to be during this time. And I encourage you, no matter what else you're working on, spend a little time with Jesus in Matthew 6. And follow his disciplines. In fact, I know of somebody who just in this period of, uh, of COVID who started fasting again on a regular basis. And so um, take the disciplines that Jesus encouraged us to take and live them out. And then we'll, have, uh, we'll see the trust in him that we need to have. Amen, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I just want to give a thanks to CLA for uh, making this opportunity available to us to participate in this. And once again, if, um, if anybody has any questions who's been watching that, uh, that we can answer after the fact, feel free again to email me at kurt at barnabasfoundation.com. Uh, thank you again for joining us. God bless. Thank you for listening. This has been a members-only broadcast brought to you by Barnabas Foundation. Learn more about the variety of resources, tools, and training available to you by logging into the Member Center at www.barnabasfoundation.com.